Welcome to the Sports Innovation Institute podcast, located inside the School of Health and Human Sciences at IUPUI in Indianapolis, Indiana. I'm your host, Travis Smith, a proud sport management alum, adjunct faculty member, and associate editor of the Sports Innovation Journal here at IUPUI. On this podcast, we look to highlight the innovative practitioners and scholars in sports to learn and design Think the Future of the Industry together. Thanks for listening to the Sports Innovation Institute podcast. All right, so I'm here with Dr. Nick Elam from Ball State University, and um, basically, if you watched the NBA All-Star Game, he had a role in the ending, and I think you were trending on Twitter even, uh, so that had been kind of cool. Could you explain to our audience really just what the, the Elam ending is and what problem you're trying to solve with it? Well, I'll get to that here in a second. I'm flattered that I was trending on Twitter, and not only just trending, but uh, you know, looking back through the feedback that I would say easily 90% of the Twitter feedback about the Elam ending was positive. And that's saying something because someone once told me that it would be hard to get 90% of the people on Twitter to like free beer and free ice cream. And so the fact that 90% of people on Twitter were being positive about the Elam ending was really cool. So that's very promising. Uh, The Elam ending in a a nutshell is that you play most of each basketball game with a clock and you play the last part of the game without a clock. And it's a way to preserve a more natural style of play through the end of every game. Really, the idea is not to change basketball. It's to do the opposite. Uh, So those settings would vary based on the league or the event. Uh, The NBA used a version of this format where you would get rid of the clock for the entire fourth quarter. Another version that I actually favor, which has been implemented by TBT, the basketball tournament, uh, you would just get rid of the clock for the final few minutes of the game. But again, the idea is that you would uh, you would compel teams to play basically by the spirit of the rules at the end of the game. The leading team would have to play assertively to reach the target score rather than playing very passively and stalling. Uh, The trailing team can rely on stops and scores to get back into the game rather than having to foul and hand away free points when they're on defense or rush and force up ugly shots when they're on offense. And uh, yeah, so, you know, leading to more comebacks, leading to more memorable game ending moments, all those sorts of things. And, and, and the aggregate so far, well, absolutely. It's meeting all those aims and it really did a great job at the NBA all-star game too. Now you've been writing and presenting on this topic for a long time. Uh, can you walk us through how you initially even got started with this idea and then uh, why you kept at it? Um, Cause I think you've been doing it for close to a decade, I think. So the first real conversation, I guess I would, I said, was probably 2004 when I was a senior at the University of Dayton at the time and my housemates and I we were all sitting around watching March Madness we were all lifelong basketball fans so I remember the game it was Duke and Xavier it was a lead eight Sunday and uh, you know here was a game and just like so many we had seen before highly competitive highly intense and then you get to the final stretch of the game and all the air just goes out of the arena and a relatively slim deficit just seems impossible to overcome. The outcome just seems predetermined at that point. And we're looking around at each other just saying, you know, this is really weird the way that the game changes so much at the end. And even beyond that, we just saw it as a fundamental flaw that here you get to stage of the game where the trailing team's only recourse is to deliberately and overtly violate the rules of the game by fouling. That's their only way to stay in the game. And now we tossed around some ideas at the time. None of them were really viable or sound or uh, original at that time on that day. 
but it was a few years later, it was 2007, when we'd all moved on with our lives, but that was when the, the light bulb went on, that all these different phenomena that we see at the end of the game, it is attributable in some way to the game clock. Maybe if you got rid of the game clock at the end, that maybe it will address these issues. Now, even then, I thought, okay, well, there's got to be some fatal flaw here that I'm overlooking, uh, or to me, it seemed like a gimmick at first glance. So I kind of explored the idea thinking that I was going to find something wrong with it, that I was going to talk myself out of the idea. But the more that I researched it, the more that I really grew to believe that it was necessary, that it was sound, that it had the potential to be very cool. And I started to regard it as an anti-gimmick, that it would actually lead to a style of play that's less gimmicky than what we see at the end of games now. And so that was a very consuming project in the spring and the summer of 2007. And, you know, I finally sold myself on the idea, but then that's when the really tough part came, uh, which was 10 plus years of reaching out to people in the basketball world, trying to convince someone else that the idea had merit. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned the basketball tournament, TBT. And so if anyone listening isn't aware of what that is, it's, it's basically a $2 million winner take all annual tournament on ESPN. Uh, so how did, how, obviously some, a lot of things had to happen between uh, then uh, back when you created the idea versus them adopting it. I mean, is that, what was that uh, process like? And was that really your major breakthrough with the Elon Mending? That was absolutely the big breakthrough there in uh, 2017 when they implemented the Elon Mending for the first time. They were even the ones who gave it the name, the Elon Mending. Uh, in the meantime, between 2007 and 2017, uh, was a lot of outreach to just any kind of stakeholder, any kind of league or event at any level in the basketball world that I could reach out to and try to generate discussion about this idea. It, was, it took uh, several years before I really had an opportunity to uh, speak or write about the idea on any kind of platform that had its own gatekeeper and would allow, give me the chance to do so. And I'm very appreciative of those opportunities. Um, and then in, the, in August of 2016, it was just another round, one of many rounds of outreach. This time I was going to just circle back and, and reach out to some semi-pro leagues and events, some international leagues. Uh, and Tim, TBT just happened to be on that list. I didn't really have any reason to think that uh, they'd be any more open to it than anyone else would be. But just a couple of days after sending my initial email, I, I got an email back showing genuine interest. And we stayed in touch as the weeks and the months went on. And then again, going into 2017, their event, they said that they were going to try it on an experimental basis for their preliminary rounds. And it worked so well, it got such positive feedback from all of their stakeholders that they decided to go all in for the Elam ending for their full event in 2018, 2019. And there's no looking back uh, as far as TBT is concerned. Yeah. And so then you obviously get credibility there. And then that spirals into or snowballs into the NBA All-Star game because you already had the credibility. And so it's kind of snowballing. When I think of this, and I'm not like a huge basketball um, observer as far as analytics and and things like that but you know when I'm wondering this I'm wondering if it can catch on to mainstream basketball to maybe the AAU level because you know a lot of people are recruiting there for top talent and it's not necessarily you're not going to have to deal with the high schools and the state uh, uh, having to change the way a, a game is played do you think the AAU could be kind of at an advantage that they look at adopting uh, this philosophy it would certainly get my vote at the AAU level or any other level. I mean, we have seen some AAU events adopt the Elam ending, uh, most notably uh, the Up North Challenge, which is an AAU 
event in, uh, in Michigan. And so they've implemented it with, with success. They intended to do so going forward. So that's exciting to see. And, and as much as I believe that the Elaming would absolutely improve play at the NBA level, I think it would be even more beneficial, say, at college basketball. But I, I believe it would be even more beneficial beyond that at, say, the high school level or AAU level. Any league or event uh, that does not use a shot clock would really especially benefit from the Elam ending because that's where you see the most kind of manipulating strategies uh, trying to manipulate the game clock. And if like high school ending, holding the ball for a whole minute because there's no shot clock, for example. Right, and, and it's no exaggeration to see a high school game go to overtime, go to, uh, you know, four, I think it's a four-minute overtime in a lot of states. Somebody wins the opening tip in overtime and will literally stand there for three and a half minutes before they go into their offense because they're trying to get the one and only possession of overtime. And, I mean, it is just an unwatchable just uh, crawl to the finish when the game clock becomes the star of the show. Yeah, and then um, what kind of hurdles do you would you expect to have from like a, a state level of a high school? I mean, is that where you're – have you looked into that? Is that something you'd have to go into like the Athletic Association for the state or how would that even work? And is that something you long-term sounds like you might be interested in trying to do? Oh, yeah, and trust me, I mean, I can't even count how many times I've reached out to uh, high school associations over the years. Um you know, even, even since the Elam ending has been implemented at TBT, you know, still continuing to reach out to all, all 50 states and just hope and just knowing that it's a matter of time, I think, before somebody gives it a chance and then somebody else and then it'll continue to spread. It was really exciting for me in October of 2019 that I had a chance to speak at the Ohio High School Basketball Coaches Clinic in Columbus. And, uh, you know, to, again, to have that audience I thought really, and to be part of that program uh, for high, specifically for high school coaches, really, I thought legitimized the format. And again, I think it'll just be a matter of time, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, I've, I've learned to be patient and positive with it because, you know, it's 13 plus years of reaching out to high school associations and, and I'll continue to do so. And, uh, but I do believe that the format speaks on its, speaks on its own better than I can speak on its behalf. And I think that's why, you know, it took 10 years for the Elam ending to be implemented for the very first time. And then just three years after that, before it reached the NBA all-star game level. Um, again, I think as more and more people see it and become familiar with it and understand its purposes um, and, and see that it's really kind of a simple and elegant idea, the more and more likely it'll be implemented at the high school level or other levels. Yeah. Maybe it could be, you know, the G league at the NBA, they see the buzz that it generated from the all-star game. Maybe they see uh, the G League is kind of their their testing ground. But when you earlier talked about college basketball, uh, I'm, I often think about how the NIT um, that basically becomes a um, an innovative training ground for um, just testing out new ideas um, for the NIT at the at the end of the men's basketball season. So if maybe it could even catch on at the NIT at some point, they've done some pretty. I think they extended like the three point line. They tried extending the the box, the foul line. Um, and then did some weird thing with fouls. So who knows, maybe, uh, uh, there, I mean, I think there's tons of growth opportunity then. And I think getting an NBA is obviously speaks for itself uh, that you were able to get all the way there. Right. And uh, yeah, just another example, I think in 2015, the NIT, that for the men's NIT, they 
changed the shot clock from 35 seconds down to 30 seconds. And I think just the, the following fall, they implemented that change uh, for the for the men's game across the board. And yeah, so you think about postseason tournaments like the NIT or the CBI, the CIT. Again, it was one of those things where I, I can't even count how many times I've reached out to them over the last 13 years. I'll, I'll continue to do so. And I, I feel like um, it's very likely that they are discussing it amongst themselves. And again, it's just going to be a matter of who, which of those tournaments is going to be bold enough to try this format for the first time. Cause I think somebody's going to do it. I think it's going to be successful. And then um, you can either be known as the trendsetter or the follower. And so I hope that uh, one of those is, is uh, intent on being the trendsetter. What do you think uh, the role something like this could have on sports betting for fans? Because obviously that's growing and the XFL has made some waves with being all upfront about sports betting. I mean, uh, if, if someone did adopt this, um, a developmental league or a big league or somewhere where sports betting is allowed, um, what kind of impact do you think could that really offer up any prop bets or anything like that? I think it would have a very positive effect in the sports wagering boom that we're in right now. And it would be positive for all stakeholders. It would be positive for sports books. It would be positive for the leagues. It would be positive for fans. So there would be some effects on things like point spread or over under. Now these effects wouldn't necessarily be good or bad. They would just have to be certain adjustments. And, you know, again, from the, from the sports books, standpoint they've always found some way to stay one step ahead of the of the betting public and here would just be another way for them to stay one step ahead of the betting public when it comes to point spreads and over under uh but there would be the introduction of a new prop bet which i truly believe would become the most popular prop bet in all of sports among casual bettors and that is just betting on which player is going to put the ball through the net to win a given game uh, because every game has to end with the swish of a net under the Eagle ending. And so, um, you know, if that helps people stay invested till the end of the game, if they say, Hey, I'm going to throw $5 down and try to turn it into $50 uh, with, with this individual player winning the game, uh, even betting on the shot type, whether it's a three pointer or a free throw or a dunk or a layup or a mid range jumper, whatever it might be player and shot type, I think will become just an absolute craze uh, for as a prop bet. It'd be uh, nerve wracking for someone if uh, their their player for that prop bet is the final score is at the free throw line and they're just waiting uh, for the free throw. I mean, I, there's definitely some excitement. Um, I've, I don't partake in any of that, but I agree. It's we are in a sports betting boom right now uh, in sports business. So um, that part is is pretty interesting to say the least. Hey listeners, a quick message and then we'll get right back to the interview. I wanted to quickly tell you that the Sports Innovation Journal is now accepting submissions. If you have or are looking for a place to publish your innovative thoughts and studies on the sports industry, then please consider the Sports Innovation Journal. We are an open access journal and our target audience is the practitioner looking for answers to the questions and problems in their job and we want to attract and publish researchers that are identifying and studying those questions and problems. If you are interested in learning more about the journal and wanting to submit or sign up to be a reviewer, then visit the link in the episode notes or email Dr. David Pierce, the editor and director of the Sports Innovation Institute at dpierce3 at iupui.edu. dpierce3 at iupui.edu. Now let's get back to the interview. 
Um, before we uh, end, uh, I know you're into obviously this, but I also want to get your opinion on some sports analytics and just the future of sports. So I thought this could be kind of fun. I just want to run through a few different sports and get your thoughts as someone that is obviously interested in either sports analytics or sports research. So first off, I want to, would you say it's a fair comparison? Obviously it's a little bit different, but of what you're trying to do um, with NASCAR. So NASCAR has created different stages throughout a race. And I know yours is really um, out of the, trying to put the excitement back into the end of a basketball game. And NASCAR seemed to be there trying to put the fun uh, in the middle because really just this first lap and then the end is the only thing that a lot of people were, were enjoying. Would you say that's a fair comparison of uh, trying to solve a similar issue? Um, I don't know if you follow NASCAR very closely with that stage format. I love NASCAR. And so I, I, I'm very familiar with that stage format that they've introduced. And, I, and like you said, I think it is meant to add a little bit more uh, short-term urgency, you know, earlier in the race. So I agree with all those things, but as far as uh, the connection to the Eva Mending, I don't, I'm not sure I really see uh, the connection there, but. Um, well, trying to catch like attention span, um, I guess, is what I'm thinking is, I'm thinking more of the user experience um, of, I think we live in a time where uh, different sports are having a hard time getting people to even view a whole event. You're saving the people from, you're also, you know, it's making the ending better you're keeping fans interested till the end. And I see NASCAR trying to keep that. Um, they're having a hard time doing it in the middle. So it just seems like um, from that perspective of the fan perspective, both of these innovations are, are doing some cool things. And I, I guess, um, you know, going back to the purposes and the aims of Elam ending, I wouldn't say it's really an attention span kind of thing. I think it's even more fundamental than that. It's um, here we have, teams, you know, whether they're ahead or behind or on offense or defense, who, who aren't really honoring the basic objectives of the game. What you want is when a team's on offense that they're just trying to score. What you want is when a team's on defense that they're just trying to stop the other team from scoring. And we rarely see that at the end of games. And so um, to me, it's not, it's not so much about um, the onlooker. It's more of let's focus on the participants themselves and just make sure that uh, the offenses, the defenses, the leading team, the trailing team are just adhering to the basic objectives of the sport. Yeah. And I think it could also have a spillover to both. Obviously the primary function is the spirit of the game and the participant, but uh, thinking both even I could see, I'd be more interested as a viewer to uh, instead of turning it off, uh, just knowing they're going to foul to even know my team still has a place that keep me from changing the channel too. just trying to think on both ends of it, but, uh, what about uh, what are your thoughts on XFL and their innovation, the kickoff and the extra point? Um, I imagine sports analytics people and researchers are going to have some fun of looking at whether what's a better scenario um, for the uh, for to go for one, two or three points. But have you uh, been able to look at the XFL at all? And, and um, what do you think of that? Um, very little bit, uh, very little bit. Uh, I think the, Kickoff rules kind of interesting um, as a way to, to preserve the kickoff as part of a game, and, but make it safer for players. I think that's interesting. The I've never been a big fan of the extra point, although I'm not sure that the XFL's solution. I, I'm not sure I, I love their solution either. Um, I think maybe they place a little bit too much weight 
on, you know, because I think they have a three-point extra point that you can get. Yeah. Um, for me, that just places too much weight on on that rather than um, all the all the effort that teams go to to advance up and down the field. Um, but again, I that's I can't say I can't say it's good or bad because I haven't really watched it. And to be honest, I don't I'm not sure I really plan on watching a whole lot of XFL. Yeah, I just think uh, when we're talking about like implementation of uh, advancing your product to um, the rest of the basketball community, it is uh, kind of intriguing to see what this kickoff format will do uh, for putting kind of pressure on the NFL and, and even high school football to make it more fundamental and safe. Uh, so that is one thing I agree with. The extra point thing kind of seems like you're taking a lot of the actual game away when you could be down nine and you just score an extra point. And, uh, you know, to think about a rough equivalent in basketball here, some people, and I, th I think it's more of just kind of very casual brainstorming. Some people kind of float an idea of introducing a four point shot into basketball. Personally, I'm very opposed to that in part because I'm not sure what solution or I'm sorry, I'm not sure what problem that is meant to solve. You know, I think any, any new innovation in sports should have a very um, fundamental purpose. It should be intended to address some issue in the game. And I'm not sure if we just say, oh, well, we're going to put a four, sh four point shot in basketball. What, what problem are we trying to solve with that? And, um, and what is that going to look like if a team's down by 20 late in the game, are they just going to start chucking the ball from half court every possession? I'm not sure that that's really what we want to see. So to kind of end it, imagine your day job, we didn't really get into uh, really uh, too much of it, but uh, you are a professor at, uh, at Ball State University, so you're pretty busy. Um, and obviously, you're going to keep uh, growing this. Is there any other projects uh, that are in the works, or is your goal really just outside of that, just to keep uh, pushing uh, the Elam ending? So, yeah, there, there's definitely a lot of projects uh, in the pipeline right now that are related to educational leadership. Uh, and these are related to uh, principals and their collaboration with school counselors. Uh, we are conducting study about a mentoring program for doctorate students, uh, a, a study about teacher evaluation systems, a study about uh, study abroad programs for student teachers, all sorts of things that are really uh, confined to education and educational leadership. Uh, I've tried to find ways to bridge my knowledge and interest of educational leadership with my knowledge and interest in sports, um, specifically as it pertains to the Elam ending because I do think that there is a connection there because if you were, because I'm a former school principal and a coach and an athletic director, and I think about, well, if we were to implement the Elam ending at say interscholastic sports or intercollegiate sports, I would love to uh, get the perceptions of school leaders, whether those are coaches or principals or athletic directors, what their perceptions would be of the, of the, uh, effects, positive or negative, of implementing the elementing at those levels of play. So I've actually drawn up a proposal for a study, uh, applied for a research grant through Ball State University for that type of study about the elementing. Unfortunately, I was uh, turned down for that grant, but you know I'll, I'll continue to try as the years goes on. And you know, like I said, I've I, this has been an independent project of mine for 13 years. So uh, so if there's one thing I've learned is certainly how to be positive and patient with it. And so I'll continue to try, uh, you know, whether that's with Ball State or 
or another institution that's also uh, supportive of this concept. Well, that's great. I can't wait for uh, to hopefully see that published in, in the IEPI Sports Innovation Journal. Uh, you know, we always have an outlet for things like that um, and that handle education and sports. And so maybe that can be a, uh, uh, an outlet for you in the future. Um, but I want to thank you for being on the IEPI Sports Innovation Institute podcast. I know how busy you are right now with uh, coming off the all-star game. So we really appreciate it here in the Hoosier State as you are to focus on innovating basketball. Well, thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sports Innovation Institute podcast. Be sure to follow the Institute on Twitter at IUPUI underscore SII and let us know what you thought of this episode. If you know of an innovative business program or researcher that you think we should have on the podcast, please email me, Travis Smith, at tds at iu.edu. And please consider the Sports Innovation Journal if you are looking to publish your new and creative ideas to move the sports industry forward together.